Welcome to Bach Lab, the podcast by Emmanuel Music in Boston, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia, and this is part one of a conversation with Pamela DeLal all about cantatas. Bach cantatas are at the heart of Emmanuel Music, as one is presented every Sunday, and are also something that will be discussed often on this podcast. So I wanted to provide some definition and context for cantatas, where they come from, the sources of text, the different parts, their purposes, and more. So welcome. I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself and um, your journey into Bach and into these cantatas. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I'm Pamela Dallal, as you said, and I, um, I've been singing Bach for most of my life. Um, I came to Emmanuel as a young musician and quickly decided that this repertoire needed to be sort of the core, the center of what I do and who I am. I just, I'm so in love with this music and uh, what it demands of us. Yeah. So um, just to say a little bit more about who I am, I have recently been appointed the director of the Bach Institute, which is an educational and outreach program that we have here at Emmanuel Music. I'm a performer. I've sung um, almost all the solo repertoire for alto that Bach wrote, which mm-hmm. is an accomplishment I'm very proud of. Um, and I'm also a, a teacher and educator. So I do a lot of um, work with, you know, aspiring young professionals yeah. and helping them, you know, to become their best selves, not just in Bach, but in, in music. Love it. Yeah. And I also note that you are like a translator and you know, an analyst of this music. So I'm really excited to get that, you know, deep probing understanding that you seem to have. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, I, I began work on the libretti of the cantatas. Um, it was it was about 25 years ago, I think, um, partly in connection to a forthcoming book that our then artistic director Craig Smith was working on, but also um, to assist our parishioners and other um, concert goers and other listeners of Bach to help capture the meaning in the clearest possible way. So that that has been a really interesting journey for me to um, go deeply into the meaning of these texts and their context where the sources um, and I think by doing that, it's provided a whole other layer of meaning for me and understanding yeah. of how these pieces work. Definitely. Very text informed and historically informed, but still kind of in the modern interpretation, which I think is what Emmanuel Music is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we really believe, and I really believe that music is a present tense art. Mm. So whatever you are doing lives in the moment and must communicate to the listener where they are. Wow, yeah. Contemporary listeners. So as much as we must know what Bach was thinking and what the music could have sounded like to him, we can't make them museum pieces. Mm -hmm. They have to be living works. And therefore, we need to use our own selves, the 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 experiences of our own lives, um, the things that matter the most to us, 
and project that through the music so that our listeners have an experience, so they feel something. Yeah. And to me, whatever might have been the context of the Lutheran church in Leipzig in the 18th century, I think Bach's most important purpose is to reach the listener. Yeah. Is to affect them. And in fact, I like to say he's trying to convert us. <laughs> he, he's working really hard to change our hearts and to change our lives. Wow. Yeah. And I feel that in the performance and in the music for sure. Um, I do think the context is helpful in understanding. Um, and that's a little bit what I wanted to get into today. This episode, I would love for it to serve for kind of a, you know, if you're coming and you don't necessarily know all about what this is. Um, I think even as a music student, cantata is a little bit of a um, like a lofty, unapproachable form or word. So we just want to give everyone kind of context for this music, for this podcast. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into that today. What is a cantata? And I think that's a great starting question. Um, it's possible for someone who mostly thinks about orchestral music, say, symphonies, chamber music, you know, other concert works, that when you hear the word cantata, you think of Bach, right? Yes. But in fact, the term cantata, it's an Italian word yes. related to the word for singing. Mm -hmm. And it originated at the very beginning of the Baroque. In other words, the beginning of the 17th century, yes. 1600 or so, um, in Italy. Mm -hmm. It's an Italian word. And it reflected an interest in the composers who sort of started this Baroque revolution yes. in the solo voice. Mm. Because prior to that, most vocal music, and of course the bulk of the music being written was vocal music, yes. um, were ensemble pieces. Mm -hmm. Pieces for many voices to sing in a polyphonic way. In other words, different lines that interacted. Yeah. Um, the, the Baroque Revolution involved um, something that we now know as opera, which was dramas portrayed in music and song and other forms that were similar to opera, like this cantata form, also grew up. Um, the term cantata can refer to a work for one voice with instruments. It yeah. can refer to a work for several voices. Mm -hmm. um, it can be one movement. It can be several movements. Okay. It, it can be either sacred or secular. And the very first cantatas were, were pretty much secular cantatas. Mm -hmm. um, and when I use the term secular, I mean um, talking about love or ambition or, or other human experiences that aren't necessarily tied to worship of God. Yes. So we think of cantata as being a sacred work, but um, the term itself doesn't imply that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, like, as it evolved to where Bach might have encountered it, was it beginning to become more of a, like, standardized form? Or what was its place as Bach would have encountered it? Yeah. Um, one thing we know is that um, music that started in Italy started to spread all over Europe. Yeah. Um, and... and any ambitious composer 
would have his eye on, you know, what's the latest thing? What are they doing down there? (laughs) South of the Alps there. Um, And so cantatas were being brought into Germany and then being um, reimagined. Yeah. The, The cantata that Bach would have known first was um, a form that we associate with a composer named Buxtehude, who was also a composer that Bach knew. He was of a previous generation. And it was a a sacred work that had several sections to it, but not necessarily um, the kinds of uh, separate movements that we now think of as a cantata, Mm -hmm. where you you start something... It finishes, there's a little bit of silence, and then something brand new begins. These kinds of sections would flow into each other. Yeah. The texts that Buxtehude used were almost exclusively drawn directly from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So they would be psalm texts. They might be short quotes from the the Hebrew Testament or the New Testament. Um, and they would tend to focus on a devotional perspective, Mm. either, um, you know, praise of God or um, meditation on sin or other things. Um, It also began to incorporate what we would call hymns, what they would call chorales. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, in the Lutheran church, those were so significant for worshipers because many of them were written by the founder of the tradition, Martin Luther. Right. And the ones that weren't written directly by Luther were written by people in his circle. Yeah. Um, so when a libretto or a score, a piece of music incorporated a chorale, it would have this deep sense of familiarity mm-hmm. people would know the words and know the tune they would know the tunes and then it would give them this this wonderful sort of um familial connection like i i know where i am i know what this is i could yeah. even hum it along in my head so i'm sure that's something that bach really paid attention to and took away um i'd love to back up a little bit um maybe first a little context of the religion and even like music's place in that time period? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, obviously in in some ways it's huge. And of course. I don't want to necessarily be the representative of, you know, what Lutheran theology is. Yes. Um, so Christianity, as it existed in Europe for centuries, was tied to the Roman church, in other words, Catholicism. But there were some rumblings of dissension that grew louder and louder. And part of it was, I would say a lot of it was tied to corruption, Mm -hmm. to, to behavior of various um, authorities in the church, high and low that seemed to lose touch with the, the foundational message of Christianity. Yes. Um, Anyway. So Martin Luther was originally wanting simply to reform Mm -hmm. the church from within and made a very strong stand against the Pope and saying, these are things that need to change. It got caught up in a lot of politics. But in any case, um, the Lutheran 
reform movement, which you know we think of as the Reformation, mm-hmm. in fact, um, really took hold. So it was a schism in Christianity. So from this point forward, there were two different ways, at least, yes. of worshiping Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, what Martin Luther and his followers did was to sort of build a new worship tradition. Some yeah. of it was based on the Catholic rite, um, but a very important part of what they did was they wanted to be in the vernacular, mm-hmm. meaning they mm-hmm. wanted it to be in the language that everyday people spoke, yes. which was so different than the Catholic Church, which was all in Latin. Mm-hmm. And that meant that a large part of the worship service um, was opaque to the faithful congregants sitting in the church um, who just had to sort of believe that some great thing was happening on their behalf yeah. <laughs> that they didn't understand. Um, now, there's no doubt that music played a hugely important part in the Catholic Church, in its entire tradition. Um, but some reform movements were suspicious of music because it, it could speak to the human soul mm-hmm. at a level that's um, beneath the the level of language. Yeah, And if the music is communicating something that the message people can't control, they're a little suspicious of it. Fortunately for us, Martin Luther was a lover of music. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, he not only wrote the hymn, many of these hymn um, poems, but also composed a lot of the melodies. Um, So this idea of of chorales uh, was a very significant part of the Lutheran faith to mm-hmm. have this, these, these wonderful tunes available. Um, and one thing that we know about the young J.S. Bach was that he was an organ virtuoso. Yes. So by the time Bach comes around in the end of the 17th century, the organ is an incredibly important object in a church that was being played as part of the worship service. Mm-hmm. So there's an instrumental context right there. We yeah. have great musicians displaying their talents and um, also putting them in the service of accompanying singers, et cetera, et cetera. We certainly know when we look at the books to Huda Cantatas that instruments were also brought in. Yeah. You know, vials, violins, cellos, and other instruments. So at least with this other composer, um, cantatas were becoming commonplace in the service. Is that right? They were certainly becoming um, more commonly incorporated. Mm-hmm. So Bach didn't invent this idea. Yeah. And and when you look at the the very early cantatas that Bach wrote, they look a lot like the books of Huda cantatas. They're um, sectional, but without large silences or breaks between the sections, um, the, the libretti, which it basically is what texts are being sung. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about how those came about, but For sure. basically that's what the sure. term means. Um, we're pretty much biblical, you, you know, stringing together various biblical passages that, that connected in different ways, perhaps with some hymn verses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started writing cantatas as a pretty young man. Yeah. Um, he had several different 
positions as church organist or church musician or um, contour. And he also worked not only in churches, but also at some courts, some noblemen's courts. But in, in every place, it seems clear that he was really interested in writing these pieces. He wanted to create opportunities to make this this type of piece, mm-hmm. a, a piece with singers on a sacred text that could be performed in a worship service. Yeah. And what would that place be of a cantata, and especially box cantatas within that service? Mm-hmm. Um, by the time he gets to Leipzig, which is sort of the, the middle of his career, mm-hmm. but also his longest serving position and, and sort of the center of his creative life, um, the cantata would be placed directly after the sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wrote a number of cantatas that had two parts to them, and those would be on either side of the sermon. These were very long services. Mm-hmm. They lasted possibly three hours or more. Yeah. Um, so when we hear cantatas in our service, we think, well, this is taking such a big chunk of our time. But proportionally, it would not have seemed that And honestly, much. I always want them to be longer. They're yeah. always too short yeah. for me. Well, they're so glorious. <laughs> um, so the cantata was placed in a part of the service that was focused on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could then theorize that it's kind of like an extra sermon yeah you know like a like a um enhanced way of bringing that same message that the preacher who might have talked for about an hour um which they sometimes did um then you have this sort of meditation um saying the 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 similar message in a different form yeah And so that kind of brings us to kind of the intricacy and the connection between the text and the topic and the day with the cantata. Can Mm -hmm. we talk a little bit about like the scheduling and, you know, the relation to the sermon? Yeah. Um, So, again, I think um, looking at Leipzig is the most useful thing because we see Bach during his years in Leipzig uh, on a on a very strict schedule providing a cantata for every single Sunday. And in fact, on some seasons, writing more than one cantata a week. Um, During Christmas, he had to write, he had to provide music, let's say, for first, second, and third day of Christmas, and then um, the New Year's service, and then the um, purification of Mary, um, which is also known as the circumcision um, so, you know, in certain seasons, he was writing four or five cantatas. Um, in any case, the message of the cantata would certainly be very closely tied to what we call the lectionary. Yes. And the lectionary is a set of readings from various Bible books that the Lutheran church designates for every single Sunday. Yes. Tied to the church here, mm-hmm. right? So during Christmas... You hear readings about, you know, the nativity or, you know, the the flight into Egypt or the the visit of the wise men, things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, At other times of year that are not tied to holidays, there's a set 
number of readings, epistle and gospel, that um, walk through various points in Jesus's life. Yeah. Or particular themes, mm-hmm. right? The longest season in the church year is the season between Trinity Sunday, which is the end of the sort of long Easter arc. Yes. Until Advent, which Advent, of course, happens basically a month before Christmas. So you've got five months um, with no important holidays. And so these, this long set of, of Sundays, which are called the first Sunday after Trinity, the second Sunday after Trinity, blah, 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 goes all the way to 23rd, 24th. Um, these were based on um, lessons. Yeah. Um, things like parables or other sayings of Jesus. And the cantatas were always written to reflect and enhance whatever those lessons were. Yeah. So, you know, we, we see the content of cantatas changing mm-hmm. throughout the year in terms of the tone, the um, emotional content, and the, the mood. Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, something I find so fascinating is, you know, he's doing this for multiple years, so you're going to have the same readings again, and how is he going to approach that another time? Yes, um, so I think at this point it might be helpful to talk about these libretti a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, something that a, a, a kind of a beginner coming to a cantata, a, a misconception that's easy to make, is that Bach wrote them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have no evidence that Bach wrote any of his libretti or even directly compiled them. Although some scholars do speculate that changes that they can identify um, could have been done. Certain words. Certain words, certain... Now, how do we know that he changed it? Because some of these poems were circulating in the local community in little pamphlets Mm -hmm. that were published. This um, writing of sacred cantata poems or libretti was like a cottage industry. And this idea of moving beyond just pulling text directly from the Bible, but actually incorporating a contemporary poet's um, ideas, whether it's in a, um, a strict form, which we would associate with an aria. Mm-hmm. When I say a strict form, I mean it has a set number of lines, it has a, a certain kind of meter, there's a very identifiable rhyme scheme, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are movements that are more free form, and these would be the movements that would be set in what we call recitative form. So along the lines of the libretti, what are some of these themes and texts that he's pulling from? What are some of these authors? When we ask that question, okay, we know Bach didn't write the libretti. So then the next question will, who did? And the sad truth is that the majority of the pieces, we don't have a name that we can connect. Um, the I mentioned that some of these pamphlets were circulating so we could identify some of the poets, one of whom was a woman who lived in Leipzig named Christiana Mariana von Siegler. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was distributing her 
cantata libretti um, separate from Bach's pieces. So we happen to know that. And would she be writing like specifically in hopes to be in a Bach cantata? Like were there other cantata composers that could have picked it up? Absolutely. Other composers? Right. Not necessarily in Leipzig itself, uh-huh. but, but, you know, like I said, it was sort of a cottage industry. So a lot of these were very locally tied. Um, but two other poets that we know that Bach collaborated with were um, very different. One was a man named Zalmo Frank, and his he lived in Weimar, which was a post that Bach held for a number of years. And it was one of the places where Bach really devoted himself to writing very interesting, innovative cantatas. Um, Frank was a very creative poet and gave Bach a lot of material. Um, he, I, I don't have the number, but yeah. in any case, um, he wasn't able to continue to collaborate with him once he went to Leipzig. He took, I think, maybe a few texts with him, and there's one more piece that we know on a Frank text, but that's a good example of how the collaborations were very much local mm-hmm. and in the moment. Another really significant poet that Bach worked with was a man named um, Henrici, but he took a pen name, Picander, which is a Greek reference. Mm. And he was, um, he really styled himself as a classic poet. Um, In fact, in addition to some very wonderful church cantatas, Picander is responsible for the text of the St. Matthew Passion. And for many, many, many of Bach's secular cantatas, including um, celebratory cantatas. Uh, So we see Bach choosing texts from very many different kinds of poets, um, very devotional poets, and then these sort of um, more ambitious, more classically based poets. Um, So when you say what does Bach do if he's written a work he's really proud of for a particular Sunday and then that Sunday comes around again and it's the same readings. A very interesting solution that he came up with was he he decided instead of basing the cantata on a biblical motto, Mm -hmm. which would be likely to be drawn from the readings, he decided in his second year in Leipzig to write an entire cycle, in other words, every piece for that entire year based on a different hymn. Um, and how, so how does he do that? He has to find a poet who can create these libretti for him. Mm. And one of the great tragedies of Bach scholarship is that we don't know who that person was. Um, you think the same person wrote? So since we don't know who, we can't know that. Um, my gut feeling is that it was, that it was it was one very, very creative and, and thoughtful person who took on this project and, again, speculation, probably collaborated closely with Bach. Um, another reason why we might speculate that it was one person is that that cycle broke off suddenly mm-hmm. in that year. He didn't, in fact complete a cycle of chorale cantatas. Although there's some wonderful evidence that he returned to the idea and 
created chorale cantatas to slot in for Sundays that he had missed. Yeah. Much later in his career. And like, just a general about what a chorale cantata is, um, it's using the same hymn for the entire cantata. Is that correct? Yes, but in very creative and different ways. Yes. So there are cantatas where the entire text of the cantata is the literal hymn. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a naive way of imagining what that would be is that you would hear it almost like a set of variations. Like, I'm going to hear the melody in every single movement. But that's not what Bach was doing. In fact, he abandons the melody. He uses the melody generally in the opening movement and in the last movement. Sure. But in all the middle movements, even if the text is exactly from the hymn, he creates you know, brand new musical ideas. Sure. But those cantatas with the actual literal text of the hymn are the exception. Most of the chorale cantatas have a form something somewhat like this. The opening movement would be a choral movement. We would hear the melody of the chorale sung by one of the voices, say it's, you know, alto tenor soprano alto tenor bass so one of those voices most often the soprano but sometimes it would be in one of the other parts um would be singing the melody and the orchestra and the chorus would be decorating and and using motives or or creating completely new textures underneath this is called a chorale fantasia um it's almost like the way an organist might decorate a chorale if he's playing a solo piece, but you know, in a choral context. Then we'd have some succession of solo movements, recitative, aria, etc. Um, in the text for those movements, the poet would be reading the hymn and maybe he'd say, okay, now I'm going to look at the second verse. Mm-hmm. And he'd look at it and say, oh, I see the, 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 the message of this verse is um, we need to be very watchful because the end times might be coming. And instead of using the actual words of the chorale, he writes his own version of that. Interesting, yeah. Um, and then similarly with the next aria. Related in theme. Related in theme. Sometimes one line mm-hmm. from the actual chorale will be inserted and in some very, very fancy works the the melody might just appear in the middle of a movement mm-hmm. um kind of you know as this motto or this quote it feels very like cyclic mass kind of inspiration yes i mean you know when we think of um the 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 um cantus firmus sure. that was used in the catholic church um we do see some of that same practice Mm-hmm. going on but but this is very sophisticated because it's not just simply melodic but it's it's also very much tied to these words yeah um so these chorales would then um walk through several of the verses sometimes they combine them and then we'd usually hear the the final verse of the chorale sung at the end in a simple homophonic setting um and and so that 
he wrote so many of them. And mm-hmm. of course, they are so magnificent that I think we associate that structure with a sort of what we might call typical Bach cantata. This was just part one of my conversation about cantatas with Pam DeLaw. In part two, we will be exploring more about the sound in different parts of Bach cantatas through listening to a cantata and doing a bit of analysis. So stay tuned. Bach Lab is brought to you by Emmanuel Music in Boston. The music you heard in the introduction and throughout this episode is from Bach Cantata BWV 127, recorded live at Emmanuel Music on February 27, 2022, and engineered by Seth Torres. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast. Visit emmanuelmusic.org to learn more about us and explore our exciting 53rd season. Thanks for listening.